Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. If you would please stand with me together, let us express our reverence for God's written word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will endure forever. So God's people have striven through the ages to hear and to heed God's word faithfully together. Let us do that now. Acts 4, beginning at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. We ask now, dear Holy Spirit, that you would add your blessing to the reading and especially the preaching of your own word. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe in the life-giving ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we believe that even now you're pleased to have your way with our hearts. And we ask that you do that for the Father, the Son, and you, the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Today we have to do a little bit of hard work together, and in that context, a little bit of heart work as well. For Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, are arguably uh, one of the most beautiful and yet one of the most easily misunderstood texts in the entire New Testament. I was really excited to get to this uh, text and to preach on it. One of the reasons why I was excited to read it was I wanted to hear what R.C. Sproul had to say about it in his commentary on the book of Acts, which is one of many that I'm using, and he skipped the section entirely. (laughs) But it's okay. Others did not, and there are really wonderful pearls uh, inside the text that we are going to look at this morning following the outline that you have, the first of which is to consider together how the gospel builds unity. And I want to begin here by asking a question, a rather simple one. What does the gospel accomplish? By the time you get to Acts chapter 4, the gospel has accomplished certain things, not simply as a fact, but now a life-transforming reality. And you might say that it has transformed two relational spheres. First is our relationship with God. If you look at my hand for a moment and think vertically, the gospel has transformed our relationship to God. He has moved us from a state of condemnation now to a state of justification. As later biblical authors will put it well, we are no longer enemies. We are now friends to God. No longer strangers, but now adopted sons and daughters. This is what the gospel has accomplished, and it is the remarkable work that God has done for us by the ministry of his spirit. But what else does the gospel 
accomplish. Not simply a vertical transformation, if you will, but a horizontal one as well. In many ways, this is what we're looking at here in Acts chapter 2 through 4, uh, is that the gospel has radically changed not only our relationship with God, but even our relationship with one another. People that were formerly enemies have become friends. People that were formerly strangers have now become family. Those who once had nothing in common, now we see in Acts chapter 4, apparently have all things in common. Don't lose sight of the fact that we're still unpacking the work of the Spirit at Pentecost. God has done a great work. Jesus, who died, is now risen from the dead, as he promised he would do. He has sent his Spirit. The same Spirit that brought him up from the dead has now been sent down from heaven. It is the gift of the Son and the gift of the Father that the church should receive the Holy Spirit. In many ways, Acts displays the life of this new fledgling church, but another way we ought to think about the book of Acts is the biography of the Holy Spirit. The history of what the Holy Spirit has done, what the Father and the Son have sent the Spirit to do. The great gift of the Spirit leads, in Acts chapter 4, to the great giving of the church. And I want you to turn back up for just a moment to Acts chapter 2, Verse 45, I want to hear that sound. See, this is the problem with phones. There's no longer any sound when I tell you to turn. I can't tell if you're actually doing it. But if you look at Acts 2.45, it's an important, 2.45 is an important verse. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Then you come back to Acts chapter 4 and you see an expansion of that in verses 32 through 37. That giving, which we will come to in just a few moments, was an outworking of their newly found unity in the Spirit. But for now, I want to talk a little bit more about unity. One of the most important implications of the gospel is that union with Christ implies union with Christ's people. If you are united to Christ... You're united to those who are also united to Christ as well. No Christian is an island. God did not design for us in our relationship with him to be sort of isolated and uh, rugged individuals, so to speak. Being reconciled to God implies that we are reconciled with one another and that we actually have fellowship with the body of Christ. You can say it lots of different ways. Being loved by God implies that we ought to love one another. Union implies communion, as we'll enjoy a little bit later at the table, but also communion in life. And that's exactly what you see in Acts chapter 4. Union and communion in the body of Christ. This is affirmed in uh, three different ways. Uh, First of all, we are told that they were of one heart and soul. Isn't that great language? What a wonderful way to describe anyone particularly the church. They were of one heart and soul. It is beautiful uh, language. Luke refers, notice if you pay attention closely to the language of the text, he does not refer to a small remnant of the church. He does not refer to a, a handful of people. If you will, there's not a small group distinguished from the large group. That's not a shot at small groups, just to say. Uh, what he refers to here is the whole church. All 
of those who are gathered together, the full number of those who believed. He could have isolated those who came from certain places because in the book of Acts at this point, many did. He could have isolated those who came from certain cultures. Again, that was truly the case and possible. He could have even isolated those who came from certain economic stations. The wealthy were getting along well that day. The poor had many things in common. But that's not the way that Luke puts it. He does not divide them in order to display unity, but rather shows that they were unified in spite of their diversity. That's the point. He does not divide the church, but rather shows how the gospel unites the church. It was the full number of those who believe who are of one heart and one soul. And if you've been in the church long enough, and many of you have, you know that there is nothing more beautiful than a church at peace and nothing more heartbreaking than a church divided. And we can be thankful for those seasons of peace that the Lord grants to us. We can be especially thankful when those seasons are long and extended. I think we are enjoying a season like that here in our church. You saw it yesterday at the church work day. I love the way the elder put it. Uh, Those who came yesterday for pizza and a little bit of work. (laughs) But the reason the church is of one heart and soul is that they are bound now to Christ. That's the bond. That's the glue. That's what they have in common now with one another. They're now bound to Christ, and as they enjoy fellowship with Christ, they're also enjoying fellowship with one another. When you think about it, uh, while that is a beautiful and sweet reality, uh, it also implies uh, the sad and heartbreaking reality that often it is the case that when we are not walking closely with Christ, we end up not walking closely with one another. A husband and a wife. Members in church. It's hard to not get along with each other when we're walking closely with Christ. You get the point. The best remedy for broken relationships is always a closer walk with Christ. And the Greek language here of our text is really great. It's a fitting way to come to the almost end of this section. It literally reads like this. That language of them all who believed were of one heart and soul. This is literally how it goes. The fullness of those who believed were heart and soul one. The one comes at the end. The fullness of those who believed were heart and soul one. It's a beautiful way of structuring the grammar. This is how I pray for our church. This is, more importantly, what Jesus says uh, he will continue to pray for the church even as he is about to be raised from the dead. Think of John 17. What is his great, the great prayer of the great high priest is that the church will be one. Jesus wants us to be one in heart and soul. Jesus wants us to have unity, union and communion with one another. But how does that unity work itself out? That takes us to our second point as we consider how the gospel builds community. So let me attempt to turn a phrase, but I'm sure it's not original. Gospel unity leads to gospel community. Gospel unity leads to gospel community. And you're probably wondering, what's the difference? What's the difference between unity and community? Well, thank you for asking. Unity is a state of mind. 
Community is a way of life. Unity is a state of mind. Community is a way of life. Unity is what he's just described, what Luke has described in verse 32. The church was of one mind, heart, and soul. But community now is the hands and feet of the rest of the section. In other words, it's what the church does as a consequence of having unity together in Christ. Community embodies what unity believes. Community embodies what unity believes. What do we believe? We believe that we belong to Christ. What does that imply? That we belong to one another. This is the attitude and the action that we see, even as Luke describes here, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Say it playfully. Imagine a house where kids acted like that. Instead of fighting over, this is mine, that's theirs. The opposite attitude, sharing all things. But I, I want to be clear. I'm going to actually have to make a little bit of, uh, how do I want to say this, apology to clarify what, what Luke is not describing and what the Bible here is not prescribing for the church. You probably anticipate I'd have to address this in some way. It's one of the reasons why I was intrigued uh, to preach it and to hear what others have done with this text. Uh, so let's be clear about what this unity and community are not. Number one, it is not communism. Uh, this may be the closest I get to saying political things from the pulpit. Uh, but what Luke is displaying here, even in the text, let alone prescribing, is certainly not capable of being described as communism. This is not a forced redistribution of wealth. What is done here is not commanded. It is described. And there's a huge difference. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it well. Communism imposes an equality. In the early church, there was a voluntary equality and a rejoicing in that. Nothing was done in a spirit of fear because the secret police were watching and you had no choice. It was the exact opposite of some imposed system. What Luke does not do here is erect a system of involuntary redistribution of wealth. Biggest phrase I'll ever say from the pulpit. He describes what the church did, but it does not come down from a decree. Uh, communism is related to what we could call Marxism. Uh, in many ways, one is built on the other that reduces the world to two classes of people, the oppressor and the oppressed, the haves and the have-nots. If state-forced communism forcibly redistributes from the top down, Contemporary Marxism, which is all over now, all over now, fuels rioting and anarchy from the bottom up. So I'm making a distinction. One that comes imposed from the state down, and the other that bubbles up from the bottom as the so-called oppressed rise up against their so-called oppressors. Neither of these two ideas, Marxism or communism, are biblical they are not described in Acts chapter 4, and they are not prescribed anywhere else in the Bible. In fact, history has also proven they're not very helpful. So Acts chapter 4 could not be used to support those systems. And I'll give you several reasons now positively why that's true. 
One, it's rather obvious, I've made the point already, their giving was voluntary. Nobody told them, go and sell your property. They were not forced. They were not coerced. They were not threatened. They were not manipulated. Their giving was voluntary. Secondly, there is no critique here of owning property. Rather, a willful selling of it. In the systems I just mentioned, the private possession of property is viewed as a bad thing. The state should own it all instead. And there is no critique here in our text of owning property, rather a willful selling of it by those who chose to do so. Thirdly, when it says uh, that lands and houses were sold and the proceeds were laid at the apostles' feet, the word for proceeds uh, could just as well be translated profit. They didn't just sell their property, they sold their property for a profit. This is an important point. Uh, Buying and selling for profit is not sinful. It's the very base note of what we call capitalism. That you make something and you sell it for more than you paid for it, whether it's a house or a good. So I'll say it differently. Buying and selling for profit is not sinful. However, extortion, lying, manipulating, distorting, hoarding, envying, those things all are sinful. But what we see here in Acts 4 is a church freely giving as they felt led to do. And not only was this not communism, it was also not communalism. I'm leaving no stone unturned here. Just in case you're tempted to walk off the wacky trail, please don't. In the 1960s, there was this sentiment referred to a form of communalism, free love, free everything, people sharing not simply their property, but even their bodies and sometimes even their spouses. And it was not only sinful, it was really creepy. So I hope I don't need to convince you that this is wrong and it's not what people were doing in Acts chapter 4, but what they were doing was actually beautiful. Note verse 34. I mean, it's really just uh, lovely language. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Notice that first line. Uh, There was not a needy person among them. In many ways, that's what this text is really about. That's the heart of the text. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Life has been given, not simply to him again, but to the church. And now, in that life, the church has begun to display that life. It's a tangible embodiment of the gospel itself. We pause and think about it. It makes sense. Jesus, for our sakes, became what? Rich? No. He became poor that we might become rich in him. And even in his incarnation, you might say it uh, this way, borrowing the language of the text for our sakes, he came into this world to have all things in common with us, even death itself. He had all things in common with us except for one thing, and that is sin. And he voluntarily gave, not by compulsion, not by manipulation or extortion. He voluntarily gave not simply his possessions, but his heart, his soul, his life for us. He died for us that we might live in him. And the resurrection, beloved, was not simply proof of his victory over sin and death, but proof of his love. The resurrection was proof 
of his love. This is what the apostles were boldly proclaiming in verse 33. And I I love the way that Luke in this section juxtaposes two very powerful images. One is of the people of God freely, voluntarily uh, making tremendous sacrifice on behalf of the gospel. And at the very same time, almost as though you're supposed to see that with one eye and with the other eye, see the apostles boldly proclaiming the resurrection of the dead. Why the two together? And even uh, the way that Luke puts it here in the middle of our section, notice the end of verse 33, and great grace was upon them all. Who is the them? Is it the them who are selling their properties and goods in order uh, to care for others? Or is it the apostles who are proclaiming the gospel? What's the answer? Yes. When I die... Get one in there. (laughs) Yes. The them is yes. The them is the church, loving and caring for one another. The them is the apostles, boldly proclaiming the hope of the gospel, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Luke throws one big blanket over the whole family. As the apostles proclaim, great grace is upon them all. As the church voluntarily and sacrificially gives, great grace was upon them all. Word and deed are bound together. The apostles' preaching was strengthened by the church's giving. And the church's giving was strengthened by the apostles' preaching. The one emboldened the other, vice versa. It's truly beautiful. Let me ask a question here. We've looked at a couple of miracles so far. One in particular, the healing of a man lame from birth. Which do you think is the greater miracle? The healing of a man lame from birth at the entrance to Solomon's portico or what you see here in Acts chapter 4, people voluntarily selling their possessions to give uh, for the sake of others. Which is a greater display of the power of the gospel? Which, beloved, is greater grace? Which is greater grace? The answer is yes. So let's consider one third and final point. How the gospel builds generosity. One final example that I hope that you will find encouraging, because that's a pun. His name is Barnabas. We meet him at the end of our section here in verse 36. Thus, Joseph, notice his original name, is changed by the apostles. They like this guy so much. They give him a nickname. His name is Joseph, but he was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. You know that name. It's a great name. We label missionary organizations after that name. Everyone wants to be a Barnabas. Everyone wants to have a Barnabas or 50 in their life. My goal, as with Luke's, is not to scold you, but to mold you into the image of Christ. And I believe that's why Barnabas is described not only in general, but uh, notice uh, where he is described here at the end. I'll deal with that uh, in a second. Barnabas, uh, in many ways, becomes a large figure in the book of Acts. You meet him here, but by the end of the book, you know him pretty well. And he's semi-famous, if you will, for several things. You hear his name again, Uh, In Acts chapter 9, when Saul is converted to Paul, Barnabas 
is there to intercede on Saul's behalf. He later becomes a missionary companion to Paul, and they travel together, going city to city, spreading the gospel and doing ministry. In chapter 11, he encourages the churches in Antioch and Syria. Why? Because he is an encourager. In chapter 15, this is one of the more interesting things about him. He actually has a little bit of a squabble with Paul over whether or not to bring John Mark, who apparently had a weak moment in ministry. And Paul says, let's leave him behind. And Barnabas, being the encourager, says, let's bring him along. And Paul and Barnabas can't come to terms. And so they part ways, only to reunite at a later point. So why do we meet him here? It is interesting the way that Luke sets up this section, first describing the generation of the group, the church, the many, but then he lands the plane on the runway of speaking of the one, an individual named Barnabas. And what we were told about Barnabas is helpful. He is a Levite of Cyprian background, but he owns land. And you might easily run past that and say, well, it's not a big deal. He, like many other people in the text, he owns land. He sells it, and he brings the proceeds, the profit, and he lays it at the apostles' feet. Not a big deal. What is a big deal, and it is found in the details, uh, is that the Levites in the Old Testament were forbidden from owning land. In the Old Testament, the Levites were forbidden from owning land. And this is so intriguing to the commentaries that they run a few different directions to attempt to address it. One is to say uh, that the property is probably his wife's. Kind of getting him off the hook. He owns property, but only because he, you know, he, he married into it. Smart man. Married into money. Uh, but that's not said in the text. It's a little bit of a speculation, albeit a generous one. Uh, others uh, suggest that perhaps what's going on here is that by the time of the first century... It's kind of like the line you've heard in a movie. History became legend, and legend became myth. Certain things that were handed down in Scripture as laws were treated more like traditions, and certain inconvenient traditions, like the Levites not being allowed to own property, were fudged. And Barnabas, whose real name before that is Joseph, is just a man who perhaps owns property he should not own. And then he met Jesus. And Joseph, who had an inheritance in this world that he should not have, realized not only that that was wrong, but that in the gospel, he had an inheritance that he should not have as well. But this one was everlasting. And so freely he has received, freely Joseph, now Barnabas, gives and he comes and he lays it at the apostles' feet. Even that is beautiful language. Bring it to the apostles' feet. A posture of not only surrender, but even sacrifice. Barnabas is giving. Comes with no strings. And I want to make a little bit out of that. Uh, there are no strings attached to his giving. There is no quid pro quo. No this for that. I'll scratch your back. If you scratch mine, in fact, the giving uh, described here in the text uh, is, is really quite beautiful uh, in how freely it truly happens, that there are no strings attached. How often, even sometimes regrettably in the church, people give, but it comes with a hook. There's an angle. There's an expectation. There's manipulation. None of that is seen here in this text. No demands, 
only a cheerful heart. Now surely part of what Luke is doing here is setting up the next story, right? You're meeting the good guys, you're about to meet the bad guys, but don't lose the point of where we are here. Here, the son of encouragement is meant to encourage us. Barnabas really is an example of biblical generosity. Perhaps an alarming example, perhaps an overwhelming example, but an example nonetheless. The Bible never demands of us what we see done here in this text. And so I don't demand it of you. And you can say thank you later. And I've said to you many times, you'll need to hear it again, especially in the book of Acts, that description is not prescription. Just because the Bible describes something that someone does, does not necessarily mean that the Bible's prescribing that you need to do exactly the same thing. And there have been communities in time and in history that have even done that. The Moravians, the Amish, many others have done exactly this. And it's interesting how they all end up living kind of like in these very small private communes, but I I can't figure that out. Cheerful, generous giving is what Barnabas does. Cheerful, generous giving is what the church does. And cheerful, generous giving, beloved, is what the Lord loves. Cheerful, generous giving is something the Lord loves. This scripture does say, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And when you think about it, it should be very easy for us to understand, and even something that we really want to strive after, even though uh, we're not commanded and kind of held over the barrel. Think about it this way. Uh, What parent does not delight in seeing their children love care for, protect, even sacrifice for one another. It's every parent's desire. How much more our Father in heaven does he desire, delight in, when his children love, care for, protect, even sacrifice on behalf of one another? And we're told in Scripture that it even silences the mouths of our accusers, the adversary. They will know that we are Christians by our love, by our good deeds, The work of our opposers is silence. And even as we see in the middle of our text here, the preaching of the gospel is proclaimed and strengthened by the good deeds of kindness, charity, and cheerfulness done by the church. When the church plays her part, the apostles are able to play their part. And it's a beautiful ministry, hand in glove. So my goal has not been at all to scold you, but to mold you in many ways, to encourage you not to do something that you are not doing, but to encourage you in what you are doing. Let me just say it very tenderly, very sincerely. Hopefully it comes across this way. This is a church full of cheerful givers in all kinds of ways. Giving is not simply giving of your treasure. It's giving of your time. And it's giving of your talent. And it encourages me greatly to see the way we together The one and the many use our time, our talent, and our treasure to serve the Lord. Not just in material things, but in other things, we are one in heart and soul. But I do want to poke a little. Can I just poke a little for a moment and say uh, this maybe small word of challenging? So a couple days ago, 
I felt a little scolded at Presbyterian and kind of surprised to hear uh, one of our general secretaries for foreign missions uh, say that uh, we are at an all-time recruiting low for the mission field. And you say, well, what does that have all to do with this text? Is, is, is the pastor just sort of stretching the application here? And I actually want to say no. So, so let me come back to Barnabas from a zoom out. In chapter 4, you meet Barnabas, who just a little while before was simply a Levite named Joseph with property he shouldn't own. And then he becomes this cheerful giver, but by the end of the book, he's a missionary. And so I want to ask it this way. Where do missionaries come from if we were at an all-time low in recruiting? Do you know where they come from? The church. They come from the church. They come from our sons and daughters. There are a lot of people in this room I could, I could picture on a foreign field. That's not my way of saying I'm trying to get rid of you. There are people I could see here on a foreign field. He made a plea for the hearts of our young people. He made a plea for, for mamas to be willing to let their kids and grandkids go far away. He made a plea for people nearing the end of their professional careers and trying to decide if they're going to chase a golf ball in the sun or chase the loss with the gospel for their final years in life. I was challenged by the plea. I felt a little scolded, and I felt somewhat encouraged, and so I would extend that uh, to you. Where do missionaries come from? They come from ordinary pews, just like the one you're sitting in. And they don't simply come from other states that have come here to go to seminary. They come organically up through the ranks in our church. This is a church full of cheerful givers. Time, talent, treasure. But might I add to that, maybe even our sons and daughters. One with Christ. Our union with him implies communion with one another. Great grace came upon them all as the gospel was boldly proclaimed and the church lived out that gospel in practical, tangible ways. This, beloved, is the work of God's spirit in them, in him, and in us. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we thank you for the many gifts that you have entrusted to us. We cannot help but think that the Father in heaven smiled as he looked down upon the church in its posture here in Acts chapter 4 when there was not a needy person among them. And all of those generous deeds were done not only voluntarily, but cheerfully it would appear. And we ask, O Lord, that you would enlarge our hearts. Help us to have a bigger vision for the kingdom of God. Help us to have a bigger vision for the planting of churches and the sending of missionaries and not simply training the ones that come to us, but raising up the little ones that are sitting up beside us, that even they they might contemplate uh, somehow how they might serve the Lord Jesus with all of their time, talent, and treasure. And even if, O Lord, uh, you would not call us to some foreign field, we ask that you'd help us to be faithful to play our part, that we would tangibly express the love of Christ as we love one another, that we would silence the accusations of our adversaries, and that we would lift up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both in word and also in deed. In his name we pray. Amen.